Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is a big fan of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He welcomed him to the Kudos Arena at Sydney Olympic Park in late May last year in front of 20,000 enthusiastic Indian Australians, declaring, and I quote, The last time I saw someone on the stage here was Bruce Springsteen, and he didn't get the welcome that Prime Minister Modi has got. Prime Minister Modi is the boss. Now, there are two calculations behind Albanese's flattery. One is simply chasing after votes. As of June 2021, there were more than 710,000 Indian-born people living in Australia, a number that has more than doubled in a decade. Indian migrants are now second only to British migrants. They're equivalent to 9.5% of Australia's overseas-born population and 2.8% of Australia's total population. But the other reason is the role that India plays in US imperialism strategy, backed by Australia, of encircling China. India, Australia, the US and Japan make up an alliance known as the Quad, whose only real function is to organise against what they see as Chinese expansion. And of those nations, India is the only one with a land border with China. So Albanese is prepared to turn a blind eye to Modi's politics if that's the price of maintaining the anti-China alliance. And let's be clear, Modi's politics are the politics of Islamophobia and authoritarianism. His political roots emerged from the far-right Hindu nationalist Rashtriya Swamasevak Sang, or RSS, meaning National Volunteers Order. Modi has built his career by deliberately stoking communalism, targeting Muslims as an enemy within. In 2002, as governor of the province of Gujarat, Modi allowed racist thugs to rampage through Muslim areas and kill more than 2,000 people. And underpinning all this is the concept of Hindutva, or Hinduness, the idea that the only authentic expression of India is Hindu in nature and origin, and that the Hindu majority should impose its will on the rest of society. It's a reactionary idea that has reached the streets of Australia. In September last year, Hindu extremists staged a march through Harris Park in Sydney, and there has been violence against Sikhs, who are a religious minority in India, in Sydney and in Melbourne. So to explain Hindutva and its implications, we're joined by Barry Pavier. Barry is a long-standing member of the Socialist Workers' Party in Britain, that's Solidarity's sister organisation, and a retired further education lecturer from the northern city of Bradford. He's the author of Hindutva and the Sang Parivar in Britain, and I'll include an, a link to the article in the show notes. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. So welcome, Barry. Nice to see you again, and thanks for this opportunity. No worries. Well, first up, who is Narendra Modi and what makes him tick? 
Modi comes from a lower middle, very lower middle class background, or petty bourgeois and Marxist uh, theory. Uh, his father was was famously a streets peace seller, as Modi keeps on, you know, reminding everybody, stressing his very, very sort of modest origins. About the age of sixteen, he joined the RSS, which I'll say more a bit in a minute and very rapidly became a full-time organiser. And because of his organisational skills, rose in the organisation. So about 35 years ago, he reached a rank called Pracharak, which means organiser. Now, that the RSS has got you know several million members, and there's about 2,500 of these people at that rank. So he's a fairly senior member, but not of the, you know, at the right top. Let's say Modi's skills were in organisation, and he first came to prominence around 1990, where he organised a national so-called chariot tour by the then our uh, leader of the political party, which the RSS sponsors, the BJP, which Modi is now the leader of and the prime minister for, and the then leader. Al Advani, did a very, very successful several month long national tour um, in this so called chariot, which was actually a converted Toyota pickup truck. And it provided the launch pad for the campaign, which led to the destruction of the Babri Majid Mosque in the city of Ayodhya and the subsequent construction of the Ram Temple, which yesterday was inaugurated by Modi in a sort of you know, massive national ceremony. And so from his success of this, Modi was then given difficult jobs by the RSS, principally sorting out the mess which the BJP had got to in Modi's home state of Gujarat. And Modi and his right-hand man, Amit Shah, who is presently the Home Minister of India, so they're a duo who work very, have worked very, very closely for over 30 years. While as Modi does, does the sort of beats of the uh, publics of uh, carnivals like yesterday, Amit Shah is the man who gets his hands dirty and organises stuff because, um, in, his, in his role as Home Minister. You said, what makes Modi tick? That Modi is a bit of an outlier in the RSS, which I'll say a bit more in a moment, but Modi very much believes in the, in the central role of the state. And therefore, for Modi, getting state power is actually absolutely central. Therefore, his role as Chief Minister of Gujarat from 2002 to 2014, and his role as Prime Minister since 2014 of India, is actually, yeah, fits exactly his idea of how you change things, which is actually a bit different from the mainstream RSS, but I might mention that in a moment. Okay, well, look, why don't we move on now to talk about what the RSS is, sort of what kind of formation is it? Is it a threat? The RSS is a mass paramilitary organisation. Literally, I mean, it has parades, people in uniforms. It's very hierarchical structure. It was formed in 1925 in the central Indian city of Nagpur, 
in a sort of response to there had been sort of Hindu Muslim um, religious sort of, sort of uh, street actions and confrontations in the previous few years. Now, there's a widespread misconception on the left that it is it was formed in some kind of emulation to European fascist movements. This doesn't quite work. Firstly, the timing doesn't work. If you find it in 25 and the Nazis didn't become anything major until you know, the early 30s. But also, if you look at the paramilitary uniform, their classic uniform, which you know, sometimes got sort of, you know, some sort of you know, sarcastic comments, was white shirts and khaki shorts. And they paraded, you know, sort of carrying long sticks called lattes. And in fact, that uniform was a direct copy of the uniform of the British Imperial Police at the time. So you see whom they were emulating. It wasn't European fascists, it was a British state. And that also shows you, you know, nature of their politics in that they they attempted to promote this idea of Hindutva, which you mentioned at the beginning, which, which predates them. Predates them back to the 1860s or 1870s as a coherent as a, as a political movement. And the RSS has been notable for, in its early periods of you know, street actions, they don't do so much now. The RSS is now part of a, of a sort of group of organisations called the Sun Parivar, which you mentioned is part of the title of my article of a year ago. The Sun Parivar is roughly translates as Brotherhood of Organisations. And it's a very wide, not formal incorporated network. And the RSS is one major component of it. The other major component is centered around an organization called the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, or VHP, which roughly translates as World Council of Hindi. And that is centered around the temple network and religious figures. Now, these people are not RSS in the main, although there's some overlap membership. And to cut a long story short, the RSS wing and the VHP wing are, although they both agree about Hindutva, are actually in competition with each other for, if like, the dominate, you know, the dominant role inside the Sun Parivar. The situation in Britain and I suspect in Australia is that the dominant element in the Sun Parivar is actually more VHP associated with rather than the, than the RSS. The RSS has in Britain has got a small affiliate. It's called the Hindu Swam Sabbath Sign in Britain. I don't know about Australia, but I would guess that it might be operating there. And it, it here it really sort of targets basically young professionals. Because the biggest and most important part in India now I'd say of the Sun Parivar is, is an RSS affiliated group, which is their student organization, which goes under the initials ABVP in India. And that has got several million members and has had from the turn of the century. Now, if you think about the churn of students every three years, by now you have you know, many millions of people who have been through the ABVP, who are now in important positions inside public sector organizations and corporate organizations.
Um, for instance, the recent uh, vice president of Microsoft in, in India, there was a bit of a scandal about three years ago, because she turns out to be a former ABVP person and is the sister of the current ABVP, ABVP president. And she allowed a very <coughs> Islamophobic speech by a regional BJP politician to go unchallenged through Facebook and so on. So, forth. so in fact, you see, that's the sort of dominant element in actually how the Sung Parivara in Dutva is being transmitted. Certainly in Britain, I suspect in Australia, given the social base of the community you mentioned, because that sounds very, very similar to the social base in Britain. And it fits there, because the whole, it's what's happened, especially the last 20, 25 years, is this massive growth of Indian capitalism, which is yeah, driven by the IT sector and noted by pharmaceuticals and its spread. And so this new you know, class, Indian capitalist class, and their professional auxiliaries, the whole notion of Hindu and Indian greatness being you know, pushed, especially by Modi, but also by the BJP in general, fits ideally. And what's happened in Britain is that since the early 1990s, the AB, you know, the VHP has basically gained domination over the Templeman through the campaign around the mechanism they used was the campaign to build this new temple that was inaugurated yesterday. And they were, and they were very clever. All they did was go to every Hindu temple in the world and say, will you sponsor a brick? Rufus Sena, that was the wedge by which they have managed to sort of get into and, you know, and over the three decades take a dominant role over the temple. Because that, the, you know, the temples are the major social organization of the community of Indian heritage in Britain. And I suspect also the same will be in Australia. They're the same kind of people. I think you're, you, know, you mentioned recent large migration. I think they're the same, you know, it's the same social base. I think that's the mechanism by which they've actually managed to get control. Now you mentioned is that I'll just finish up on, on this bit. You mentioned is the RSS a threat? Well I think it operates in the you know, circle of young professionals and actually is colonizing them. In terms of street action, and there was one in Leicester, which was quite unusual uh, at the end of, in um, just over a year ago, and you mentioned one in Sydney. Now the VHP has their own paramilitary organization. It's called the Bajrang Dal, which doesn't translate precisely into English. But I think you know, the phrase tough lads is probably closest. And they are not an organized paramilitary unit. They are basically bunches of street fighters in sort of classic sort of street fighting mode. And I think in Leicester, it was a group of people more aligned to that group rather than the RSS, who was behind the riots in Leicester. I would not, I don't know about Sydney in that detail, but I would not be surprised if that was the same sort of kind of element. Not the RSS, who in Britain and in the USA and Australia and other places don't actually target that kind of street action now. They target, yeah, you know, ideologically 
having the domination over the sort of young professional element. So we've got a number of rival ethno-nationalist right-wing religious organisations. Am I right in saying that they all share the concept of Hindutva, the Hinduness? And can you unbundle that a bit? What are the implications of people adopting that concept? All the organisations around the Sankarava are, in a sense, believers in Hindutva. That's a basic political principle. It has its origins, as I say, way back in the 1870s, as a reaction to very conservative elements of the Hindu religious establishment to attempt by the, by the British imperial state to disintegrate Hinduism, and also they tried to disintegrate it, you know, the Muslim community as well, as part of their understanding of the revolt of 1857-58, which they thought was driven by religious fundamentalism, and the way you combat that would be by disintegrating the Muslim and Hindu communities. As a reaction to that, so it's a right-wing element pushing this idea of a unitary Hindu community. Now, traditionally, Hinduism has not been unitary. It's been sort of multipolar. And there's no sort of, you know, has been no religious hierarchy amongst the, you know, the temple networks and so on and so forth. The notion of Hindutva is this idea that the only authentic expression of India is Hindu. And therefore, everything else, Islam, Christianity, socialism, is actually inauthentic. And therefore, best is should be allowed a very subordinate and marginal presence and obviously at worst from our point of view eradicated that then fits into their notion that the major imperialist force in india actually wasn't the british and the the rss had almost a zero participation in the freedom struggle against Christianism. They were notable for not taking part as an organisation level. Individuals may have done in other capacities. And so their major target is Islamic imperialism, going back to the arrival of the Turkish Sultans around the year 1200, but especially aimed at the Mughals from about 1525 onwards. And these they see as actually imperialist invaders, and therefore for them and their People in universities push this idea now, and this is one of the major, in Britain, and I guess in Australia as well, so one of the major areas for them to try and push these ideas. They have appropriated the term decoloniality. But for them, decolonialism means anti-Muslim, because Muslim imperialism is a major enemy, and therefore getting rid of rule and colonial sort of elements in Indian society is actually de-Islamifying. And therefore, they're providing in British universities this notion of we are anti-colonial, we are anti-imperialist, being Islamophobic is being anti-imperialist. Now, Hindutva actually went what actually went beyond the BJP and the RSS because because of the its implantation in 
religious figures. It was actually very present in the Congress Party. And they had two big wins when they wrote the Constitution of India back in 49. Firstly, they, they changed the new state language. Everybody had assumed until 1947, and it had been Congress policy, that the state language of the independent India would be a language called Hindustani, which is a language with a large number of Arabic and Farsi loanwords in it. At the Constitutional Constituent Assembly, it, between 47 and 49, this was changed to Hindi. Hindi is a had been created by right-wing but for grammarians back at the end of the 19th century. Basically, they expunged all the loan words from Urdu, from Farsi, from Arabic, and recreated Sanskrit equivalents, such as the word for, for student, for instance. And they changed that, and that was seen as a big win, because actually that then enabled them to downgrade Urdu as a official language. Secondly, on the basis of this, they then changed the name of the state in Hindi, because before 1947, the name of the state, which the Congress Party was arguing for in Hindustani, would have been Hindustan. And the Congress slogan before independence was Jai Hind, long live India. The Constituent Assembly changed that. So instead of Hindustan, the, lang you know, the name of the state in Hindi was Bharat, which is a Sanskrit word relating to you know, sort of, you know, the Vedic situation of antiquity. Now what's actually happening is that the elements around the Sankarva and the BJP are now campaigning to change the name of the state in English to Bharat. I polished the name India in total and put in this good for linked term. And that's actually part of the sort of you know, political sort of campaigning that's going on. It's a, it's around language politics, but it was actually deeply embedded in India, in the constitution of India from the beginning, and was embedded in elements, in significant elements, in the Congress part. Indutfa was deeply embedded in the Indian state from the beginning. In fact, there was a wedge there, which the BJP and the RSS have been able to use. Am I right in saying that the way in, in which Hundertva has been mobilised to generate Islamophobia seems to be much more severe now than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago? Is, is that correct? And if so, why? Well, I think you have to look at the general situation. It's just, they've always been you know, Islamophobic. It's like there's a wiring from the beginning with this notion of Islamic imperialism. What's happened, obviously, is that with the growth of Islamophobia in the Western imperialist states from the start off of the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and has been accelerating since, and especially since the beginning of the War of Terror against Al-Qaeda and the invasion of Afghanistan in 01 and then the invasion of Iraq in 03 and everything that's happened since has actually just played into their hands like any. And therefore, 
the overall political environment has become incredibly sympathetic and they've been able to you know, expand on that basis. It was you know, like an amazing gift that they could not believe their luck once you've got all this sort of thing coming out through you know, mainstream um, imperialist circles. Everything you know, plays into this, this narrative and they have very successfully and in a very sophisticated way played to it. And that's why you have been able to build on the back of that. And has that led to more violence? In India, certainly. Because what you've had in India has been the growth of not the RSS, but these sort of little militias, which I think basically are rebadged Bajrangdal people. You know, it's the same people in the Bajrangdal in various places who turn up, especially in Caltechian militias. Because one of the wedge issues for them is cow protection, which means banning the slaughter of cows. And this is actually a coded attack on Muslims. So what you tend to get are these basically gangs of thugs who call themselves cow protection missions, operating mainly in northern India, but in onto other places as well. They go around ambushing and harassing Muslim butchers or or people or pastoralists who um, have cows. And if these people are lucky when they're being raided, please, if they aren't lucky, they end up, they end up literally end up head in the ditch, which a number of people have. There have been a number of murders carried out by these cow protection militias. And this is like spiral since 2014 across northern India. And at, at the most, the local police eventually sort of launch a case against these people who are then immediately given bail and never jailed. Many of them just get off scot-free anyway. And it's provided the environment in which, in the state of, for instance, in the state of Uttar Pradesh in northern India, which is the biggest state, since 20, 2015, I think, the Chief Minister has been a member of the BJP called Yogi Adityanath, who's not an RSS member. He's a, he formerly ran an important temple in the North Estate, founded his own militia. Now, ever since the Yogi has become Chief Minister, he has increased the state harassment of Muslims. So, for instance, whenever there's some street riot over, you know, usually sort of launched by some, the Bajrang Dal or one of their local, you know, affiliates. The Muslims concerned are arrested and their houses bulldozed. And so proud is the Yogi of this that he's actually almost made the bulldozer his logo. And election time, because he's just recently, you know, got a second term, his supporters were going around saying support the bulldozer and things like that. And so you've got two levels of violence. You've got increased level of violence from these fights militias who change their name according to the issue. And from the state, at the level of the state, the provincial state governments. And the point about the Yogi is that he is now being seen as the most likely successor to Modi, if and when, which I think Modi intends to be a long time hence, Modi retires. Now, Modi isn't very happy with the yogi 
you know, passed down from different traditions. And so they're, in a sense, competitors. But, I mean, it's, it's stuck then. Um, because of the nature of their politics, it doesn't quite work out. I just actually did mention that Modi is an outlier in the RSS. It's one of the oddities about the RSS is that although some of its features are associated with fascism, one that isn't is that it does not believe in state in seizing state power itself. It has this particular view of Indian society in which the key organisations are what you might call civil society organisations. That's why it's spun for all these organisations like the student one, there's a petty bourgeois one, there's a whole range, and the farmers one and so so forth, because you have a union one, but not. So Modi, in his belief in state power, was always not very trusted by the top RFS leaderships. And in fact, he only became a candidate for Prime Minister 2014, where they'd run out of other options. So they don't trust him, I think, from their point of view. They're right not to trust him. On the other hand, so Modi, by the same token, Modi doesn't trust anybody else with an independent power base, like the Yogi. But that's sort of secondary to the fact that both the entire question, both of them, lead to the proliferation of violence, both at the state level and the unofficial, you know, thug level. Perhaps we can move on to the opposition to Modi. There are two mass communist parties, and there has also been resistance amongst farmers and workers. There have been strikes, and there was a very big farmers' protest, a uh, series of protests, which led to almost a farmer's invasion of New Delhi. How are people responding? What sort of demands are they putting? Are people putting up a clear alternative or are they making concessions to what Modi has to say? There's a massive amount of struggle goes on and has done almost continuously from different groups of workers and small farmers, students and so on and so forth. I mean, there's every day you see reports of protests, disputes, strikes, and so on and so forth. And the Indian working class and you know, the small farms have a decades-long, very brilliant history of fighting. And you mentioned the farms movement. The farm movement was actually a very bad moment for Modi. But it's one of the things about Modi is that although the RSS has a, t- has a typical lower middle class, you know, petty bourgeois base, one of the features of Modi is his alliance with big Indian corporate capital. Especially, there's two particular groups he favours from Gujarat, one called the Ambani group, and the other one called the Adani. Now, Adani... We know Adani very, very well in Australia. It's It's yes, been a big focus Adani, of environmental yes. struggle. Absolutely. Now, Adani is one of those two big groups. You can see how important they are, because... Um, in Australia who follow cricket will have uh, obviously sort of seen the Narendra uh, Modi Stadium at Ahmedabad in the recent World Cup final, which was actually renamed uh, for Modi two days before it was inaugurated. But called Jai Shah, who happens to be the son of Amit Shah, Home Minister. Jai Shah is now the um, President of the Board of Cricket Control in India, renamed it after Modi. But there are two ends at that stadium. One is called the Ambani end, and what is called the Adani end. Laws being brought in, which the farmers were protesting about, would have worked in the favour if they'd been implemented in their entirety work because unusually the BGP was forced to retreat a bit on this, at least temporarily, that it would have benefited Ambani and Adani and some 
some other large corporations. So it's, now Modi is actually very much heavily involved and wants to promote these two. So for instance, in May last year, he helped negotiate the takeover by Adani of Haifa port in Israel, a deal also you know, enabled by Benjamin Netanyahu. As you say, so Adani has an absolutely appalling um, history of environmental destruction. The environment is slightly different. They're heavily into IT. So, for instance, about three years ago, they picked the pocket of Mark, of Mark Zuckerberg for $9 billion. These people are actually central to Moda's project. To go back to your original question about the opposition, the sort of parliamentary opposition are hopeless, partly because I mean, Congress has collapsed, partly because they in their last period of government, they delivered nothing. In the period of the, of the crisis after 2010, they delivered absolutely nothing. And therefore, you know, it was, in a sense, an open goal for the BJP to push through. They have never really confronted the that there were large broken different elements within their own ranks. And therefore, you know, for a long time, you know, in, in the between certainly between 47, 48 and the early 80s, it was you know a lot of Congress, state government, Congress politicians who actually enabled the growth of Pindufa. And they've never really you know, confronted that. Um, which has ended, ended up being completely disabling. You mentioned the Communist Party. Now there are actually three major tendencies. The original split was actually of a sort of particularly Indian nature. Um, there is a, also a tendency which is called the Marxist-Leninist tendency, which in very general terms now sort of show inspiration from what happened in China. And for instance, there is a very big ML organisation in the eastern state of Bihar. I mean, he's got tens of thousands of members in one state. It's got, uh, it has affiliates, it's got student farmers, workers' affiliates, that's organisations with tens of thousands of members. The problem with, with all of these and this organisation, which is called the CPI L Brackets Liberation, is that they have never broken from the popular front politics of the Stalin Third International. That's 90 years worth. And the crucial point about these popular front politics is a belief in the need to collaborate with progressive bourgeois liberal parties. And it's partly based on an analysis that, you, that there is no chance that of immediate workers' revolution. In India, the parties which subscribe to this overall strategy, and it's actually all three tendencies, all fail, now fail to recognise the fact of the development of Indian capitalism, how Indian capitalism has actually now become, if you like, a global great power. They still sort of operate in a sort of 1960s analysis of the global north, the global south, the global south is all, is all under the influence of imperialism. If you look at um, Indian capitalism, oh no, it ain't, basically. Um, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the role of Adani, I mean, Tartars, the original biggest Indian conglomerate, is now about to close down what's left of the British steel industry. That was a big story over the last weekend. And you could row, go on and on and on. That means that when you, for instance, when you get into the elections, 
the CPIL, this outfit in the Slitter Car, is now going to set up a popular front for elections with a bunch of very dodgy, basically ruling class politicians who happen to have fallen out at the moment with the BJP, although most of them at some previous elections were actually in alliance with the BJP. And their entire strategy and their characterization of the RSS as big fascist is to enable this. And there was a long political statement from, from their most recent Congress at the end of last year, which ended up saying, we must call the BJP fascist because that will then allow us to make these alliances with all these very dodgy ruling class politicians before and now. And this, of course, completely demobilizes political opposition. Because you're always looking for deals with some very dodgy characters. And most of them are pretty dodgy, having done all kinds of deals. I mean, even the ones who aren't dodgy are sort of still you know, ruling class you know, bourgeois politicians. And it completely you know, demobilizes the struggles. There were communist-led groups of farmers, quite important ones, actually, really, yeah, important ones. But they were locked into alliances with groups led by extremely sort of dubious characters. And at the end of the day, they demobilized to sort of try and keep the whole operation together. And I think that's the problem. You get these constant, very courageous, often very effective, in the initial sense, mass struggles. And at the end of the day, their political leadership are always looking to, to do some kind of deal. They run into the buffers. My last question will be, in a sense, to flip this and talk about the kind of politics that is needed to fight Hindutva and Modi and so on. But before, can I just take a step sideways and talk about Modi and Israel? You mentioned the the deal where Bayadani took over the port in Haifa. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? That Modi and Israel are both working on a politics of ethno-nationalism of of so-called purity, whether it's the Jewish state or the Hindu state. I just wonder whether you could talk a little bit about that, that coming together of reactionary politics from quite different countries and, uh, on the face of it, different political systems. Obviously, one element is the Islamophobic element. That the homicidal politics on, on policies, say, you know, being pursued by the Netanyahu government in the, in the war on Gaza, obviously fits with the sort of homicidal Islamophobic politics of the Hindutva movement. In as much as Indian foreign policy is obviously initially anti-Pakistani, which is the sort of enemy on the next border, and we haven't mentioned the, you know, the massive militarization of the border with Pakistan, and in fact, although it's not what mentioned, the militarization border with Bangladesh, which is now, there's now a two and a half thousand long kilometer, 10 meter high electrified fence around the border between India and Bangladesh to stop what's called Muslim infiltration from Bangladesh into India. That doesn't get mentioned very much, but it's there. So obviously that element fits very much with the Israeli government's perspective, and especially, you know, the like, you know, the likes of Netanyahu and the people likely to succeed Netanyahu. I mean, we're talking about yeah, Ben Gvir and um, Smotrich. So you've got that element. 
and that's becoming more and more prominent. And there's a foreign policy one in that Modi would either like to neutralise powerful states on his border, like Pakistan, or completely come to dominate, like states in the Gulf, for instance, Qatar, UAE. And you see, actually, that's also the strategy of the Israeli government, the so-called Abraham Accords, which the war in Gaza has rather sunk for the moment. So in a sense, there's a foreign policy alignment as well as this general politics. I think there's also a thing a bit wider is that the more general and long-term strategy for the BJP government is projecting India as a global great power. There's a sort of military aspect as well, where people may have noticed that British aircraft carrier task force did a tour of the South China Sea sort of last year. Now, if that was going to be you know, used as a permanent feature, the probably home port for that would be the Indian naval base of Shakapatnam on the east coast of India, which is where the Indian aircraft carrier has been home ported. I think the alliance with Israel fits into that because for the Israeli government, they are, in a sense, always looking for a plan B, just in case the Americans fall out with them. It's unlikely, but they are very aware that the American support for Israel is all, always very transactional. And then actually, you know, it is not impossible that sort of situation could come about at some point in the future where the Americans might want to basically dump the Israelis. Not likely at the moment, not foreseeable at the moment, but for the Israeli government, it's always a possibility. And therefore, they need a plan B. And I think thinking in the very long term, for them, an alliance with India as a growing power would be a bolt hole just in case something went wrong with the Americans and the European. And so you've got very immediate things. Modi needs the sort of Netanyahu needs the investment and you've got Dani as the sort of, you know, pal of Modi pushing there. And it's more, you know, the medium term foreign policy ones, they their policy around the Gulf and West Asia are complementary. And the long term one, they might need a long term strategic arrangement at some time in the future, just in case, that they all fit together. And therefore, yeah, from all points of view, it makes a lot of sense for Modi to push connections with Israel and for slight and for different but complementary reasons, it help it, it fits the Israeli sort of state's interests as well. As I said, I I'd, I'd like to close on a more positive note by pointing to the politics and the potential for Hindutva and Modi to be defeated. What do workers, farmers, students in India need to do to break Modi and break the neoliberal big capitalists who stand behind him? It's not about India for the moment. It's about solidarity. Solidarity across all the oppressed, all the working class. But there's a political, I mean, as I hinted before, there's a political aspect in this, in terms of the Indian left, is the need to break from the whole politics of what you might call popular frontism. And this has gone back for decades, even before the independence, but certainly, you know, you could run through mass struggles all the way through from independence. And 
the Indian left has had massive organizations, huge number of people fighting very bravely under terrible conditions against terrible oppression over a whole range of you know, settings, very successful times, but have always been hampered and tripped up by the popular front politics of these dominant organizations, frequently thrown away success. And so that's the first thing. It needs to be building a revolutionary tendency in India, which relates, like anywhere, relation struggles, but also has revolution independent class politics, you know, to, you know, developed from the specific setting, you know, circumstances of the Indian setting. And that's a problem because there are small groups of revolutionists, and there have been, but, you know, very often it's the size of the task that daunts people. How do we start in this huge, you know, country and very often it's easy to get caught into operating and campaign in one particular with one particular group of people almost in a silo where well, you can do it it's possible to have a spend whole career in india fighting you know, you know particular group you know cause of particular groups of people and in one sense fighting for a number of revolutionaries that's proved to be quite massively an easier option but strategically it's been I think it's been catastrophic and unfortunate. I think that's the first thing. There's a second element in actually recognizing, I think, that sectarianism and Kibutva was built into the Indian state from the off. There's a whole notion of secular India linked with Nehru, going, you know, which the BJP and the RSS have therefore abandoned, actually is a serious mistake. Because then you've got to go back and challenge the very nature of the Indian state from the off. Now, that, again, is a daunting task, because in one sense, quite logically, you have to then go back, bring into play the issue of the partition itself, which becomes a, you know, even a bigger, massive task. But I think without that, you know, they're sunk, basically, eventually, you know, long term. You'll never get anywhere without recognising that. And I recognise this is quite a controversial position, but I think after 70 years of brilliant struggles, which have been tripped up in the end, I think there's a need to sort of go back and have a look at that. Over in places like Britain, and I suspect Australia as well, it's a question of solidarity and recognising that the enemy for communities like the Indian community is actually racism, not Islamophobia. Because what's actually, and it's class thing as well, because the strategy for the people who have come to dominate the Indian heritage community in Britain which basically ruling the you know, bourgeois element, is that they are trying to make themselves into an integral part of the poor British ruling class. If you read what they're saying and the pitch they're making, that's quite clearly their aim. And it was quite clearly, I think, being recognised by the British Prime Minister David Cameron when he brought in a so-called A-list of candidates before the 2010 election, which is how people like eventually Rishi Sunak, Swalabharavaman, Priti Patel got themselves elected as conservative MPs. So I think there's element in the you know, traditional core British ruling class, which is, which is quite happy for that. And I would not be surprised if there's you know, more, you know, more astute elements of the Australian roots, because you know, there's a bit of an advantage in that as well. So I think the way to find it is actually class politics, but also specific you know, picking up this idea that Muslims are a threat Racism as a threat, but focus on racism in places like Britain and Australia 
is that is and the fo- and the focus on class politics, the unity of the entire working class against the capitalists, are the obviously interrelated key to sort of cracking this and actually pushing you know, end up for Modi and all and the Sang Paravar and all the rest of them backwards. Okay, well, thank you. Well, we might leave it there. It's been absolutely fascinating. I suspect for a lot of people, there's a a lot of information that needs processing. And so once again, I would encourage people to go and have a look at Barry's article. The link will be there in the show notes for this episode. And you can take your time to read through some of the detail at your own pace. But I'd like to thank you, Barry, for your time and forward in the struggle against Modi and Hindutva. Thanks, David.